Welcome to Passing Judgment. This is a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. I'm Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School and the show's host. We are joined today by the show's co-host, Joe Armstrong. We have a really big show with a lot of legal and political updates. Joe, what is on deck today? Hello, Jessica. As my father would have said, we have 20 pounds of dirt in a 10-pound bag. There was a lot of legal (laughs) and political news this week. We're going to talk about the things we felt to be the most important. The House of Representatives voted to hold former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in criminal contempt after he defied a subpoena to appear before the committee investigating the insurrection at the Capitol on January the 6th. We're going to discuss what happens next in that case. The former President Donald Trump sued the National Archives as well as the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection in a developing turf war over executive privilege. Former President Donald Trump again, now that he's former, sat for a deposition on Monday. That's somewhat rare. We're going to talk about a very, very important story about the status of the Freedom to Vote Act. We're going to talk about the death of Colin Powell. He is the first black U.S. Secretary of State who died Monday of complications from COVID-19 at the age of 84. And, Jessica, there has been yet another development in the ongoing high-stakes litigation about Texas's restrictive abortion law, SB8. So that new restrictive abortion law, this law was put into effect on September the 1st, and then it was paused by legal action, and then the pause was paused. And Jessica, please forgive me, but where are we now? We've got a pause of a pause of a pause of a pause. What just happened? Uh, You can be forgiven because this is getting really confusing. So basically what happened at the end of this week is that the Supreme Court has decided to hear on an extraordinarily expedited basis the legal challenges to Texas's restrictive abortion law. There's two challenges that the court's going to hear. One comes from the Department of Justice. One comes from abortion providers in Texas. But here's what I think everybody wants to know. The court is not taking up the big question as to whether or not Texas's law is in fact constitutional. The court is taking up a really important procedural question here instead. They're looking at whether or not the Department of Justice or abortion providers can in fact sue in federal court to try and block that Texas law from going into effect. Okay, so what is the court looking at specifically here? So specifically, the court is looking at this enforcement mechanism. And so we're repeating this because I think for a lot of people, they think, oh, the Supreme Court is taking up the Texas abortion law. Okay, now we'll know whether or not it's constitutional. No, because of how Texas's law is set up, where instead of the state enforcing it, it's a private individual who sues another private individual who sues somebody who aids and abets a woman in trying to obtain an abortion. There's been this question of, okay, well, who gets to sue to try and make the law stop, you know, prevent this law from going into effect. And that's the question. That's the only question here that the court's going to address. Can it be the Department of Justice? Can abortion providers sue in federal court to block the enforcement of Texas's law? Texas had invited the court to say, hey, maybe you should use this as the moment to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And the Supreme Court did not take them up on that invitation. Okay, but hold up. The court is looking into the constitutionality of abortion this term, though, right? 
It is. And I think that's why the court said we're not going to look at the constitutionality of abortion when it comes to this particular Texas law. So a month later, the court, again, is hearing oral arguments when it comes to this Texas law and this procedural issue of who can sue to stop it on November 1st. Then a month later, December 1st, the court is going to hear arguments in this Mississippi case that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. The Mississippi case essentially deals with Mississippi's law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That law is not consistent with Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I suspect that the court will now decide to uphold that Mississippi law. And then the question will be, what indication does it give us about Texas's law, which is a lot more restrictive? Obviously, there's a big difference between a law that bans abortions after 15 weeks versus one that bans abortions after six weeks. So we're going to have to wait to hear from the court before we get to you know, some indication of where they're going on that big constitutional question. But I think we have some really strong tea leaves and it's not good news for advocates of ensuring that there is in fact a constitutional right to obtain access to an abortion and that that right isn't significantly narrowed. Okay, all this being said, Jessica, how did the court vote on this? Was it unanimous? No. So again, we have a lone dissent from Justice Sonia Sotomayor and she agreed that the court should hear this case, again, the case coming out of Texas dealing with this procedural question, she agreed that they should hear it really quickly on an expedited basis. I mean, it's, I know that for a lot of people, this isn't the thing to focus on, but it is extraordinary for the court to say at the end of October, yeah, we're going to hear oral arguments on November 1st. So obviously, they understand that this is very important. And, but Justice Sonia Sotomayor, is upset, and I, in my mind, very correctly, because she's saying, stop the enforcement of the law while we hear this case. And so I'll read from her dissent just really briefly. She says, for the second time, the court is presented with an application to enjoin a statute enacted in open disregard of the constitutional rights of women seeking abortion care in Texas. And then she wrote again, for the second time, the court declines to act immediately to protect these women from grave and irreparable harm. And this is, in my mind, vintage Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She really is saying, I know that we focus on these abstract legal concepts at times, but there are real people who are affected by this law. And I think, in my mind, unfortunately, she will be one of the dissenters when these cases ultimately are decided. Okay, Jessica, we will keep an eye on that. Moving on to our next topic, Jessica, the big lie that Donald Trump has been peddling for nearly a year rolls on and on and on. Trump's false narrative that he won the 2020 election reached a boiling point on January 6th when a mob sacked the U.S. Capitol while Congress was in session to certify the election results from 2020. We've been following the House Committee on January 6th and its ongoing investigation into the insurrection in our last few episodes of Passing Judgment. And today we've got a twofer on the topic. The first of this twofer involves the fate of former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. 
after the House committee investigating that insurrection at the Capitol voted unanimously earlier this week on Tuesday to hold Bannon in contempt of Congress for failing to appear after a subpoena was issued. The vote was brought before the full House of Representatives yesterday. So, Jessica, please tell us what was the result of that vote? Contempt, contempt, contempt. A historic vote, but not a surprising one. We've talked about it a bit on the podcast before. They voted to hold Bannon in contempt or more specifically to refer to the Department of Justice that they criminally charged Steve Bannon with contempt of Congress. Okay. And what were the numbers? How did the House vote? 229 to 202 with nine Republicans joining the Democrats. Okay, then. And what happens next? And who, Jessica, makes the final call as for whether Bannon will face some kind of consequences for this? Uh, Merrick Garland. So this is now in the hands of the Department of Justice. You know, whether or not it's him, certainly somebody and some people will make a recommendation to him. Uh, And the Department of Justice can make this decision very quickly. They don't need to wait months. A lot of this is already in the public record, and they'll decide whether or not to move forward with charges. Where we could see a potential, you know, slowdown here is really when Bannon, if he is charged, then fights this in the courts. That's where things could really get slowed down. Okay, and what's the background? What kind of precedent is there for convictions for contempt? Well, Joe, as you reminded me, uh, the last time there was a prosecution for contempt of Congress and it was successful was back in 1974 when a judge found that Watergate conspirator G. Gordon Liddy was in fact guilty of contempt of Congress. So we've got to go all the way back to the Watergate era. All right. So this is the next step in a process that may find Bannon eventually facing what? How stiff are the penalties here? So the penalties are anywhere from, if he is found guilty, uh, one month to 12 months in prison, and then potentially a fairly hefty fine. The fine, my understanding is, depends on which specific statute they actually decide to charge him under. And Jessica, remind us why Steve Bannon didn't show. Well, I think because he doesn't want to. He's not somebody who seems to be particularly concerned with complying with subpoenas, for instance. But what he has said is that former President Trump has told him not to and that former President Trump is saying his testimony is covered by executive privilege. I'm not going to retread everything we said about that, except to say I think that's a very weak argument piggybacking off of a very weak argument of executive privilege. All right. And why do you think they are going so hard at Steve Bannon specifically? We all know that he said, quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow on a podcast on January 5th, the day before the insurrection. We also know that Bannon isn't the only one who has failed to comply with subpoenas by the committee, but he's likely the biggest fish in that pond. So is this just an attempt to get the remaining people to comply? I think it's both. I mean, I think that they really want to hear from Steve Bannon. And reading those quotes, one can understand why. I mean, it strains common sense to think that one wouldn't want to hear from Steve Bannon in terms of just figuring out exactly what the lead up was, who knew what and when. And it also, I think, is sending a message not just to the other Trump aides and rally organizers who have been subpoenaed, but frankly, to anybody else who in the future faces a congressional subpoena and saying, you know, again, this isn't a brunch invitation. 
uh, and you need to take this seriously and comply. So I think it's both. They want to hear from Bannon for very good reasons, and they want to send a message that you have to show up. Okay, Jessica, the second development in our twofer about the insurrection is that former President Trump this week filed a lawsuit against the committee we've been talking about, as well as the National Archives, in order to attempt to block the committee from accessing records of internal communication that may involve Trump's lawyers, campaign officials, and other advisors. The big question, as you said just a moment ago, Jessica, is who knew what and when they knew it. And that's what the committee investigating insurrection is trying to determine. Beyond the incorrect claims that he won the 2020 election, the former president has claimed executive privilege in terms of any information that may implicate him in the events of the insurrection, as well as some people in his administration. Sitting presidents can extend executive privilege to their predecessors, but the Biden administration has heretofore rejected Trump's claim to executive privilege in this investigation. So that's the setting for this part of this week's drama. Jessica, can you tell me more about what Trump's lawsuit entails? Uh, Yes, but it doesn't entail much. I mean, this is a stalling technique. So we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, and I'm proud of those episodes. I'd refer people to those episodes. But essentially, former President Trump is saying National Archives do not, in fact, give those documents to the Congressional Committee that's looking into the insurrection on January 6th. The Biden White House has said, no, you do not get to use executive privilege, former President Trump. And of course, let's remember that Presidents tend not to like to whittle down executive privilege because President Biden knows at some point he may want to use executive privilege or his successors might want to try and use executive privilege as protection against releasing documents or allowing certain people to testify. But the Biden White House, in what I think is the money line in this pretty detailed letter, says kind of a version of you don't get to wrap yourself in the protections of the Constitution when you're trying to subvert the Constitution or potentially trying to subvert the Constitution. So what is this lawsuit about? It's about delaying. We've talked about this before also, Joe, which is that some of these lawsuits, just by dragging the process out, uh, you can win politically because the House Select Committee looking into January 6th has said We want to be done by early spring. So if you file enough of these lawsuits, even if they're frivolous, you can delay, delay, delay so that the House Select Committee can't get the information either ever or in time. So legally, there's not a lot to speak of when it comes to this lawsuit. It's not a legal winner. It's a it's a political delaying tactic. Okay, Jessica, so more delaying, and this may drag on for what exactly, years? Is this another attempt to run out the clock? There's that sports metaphor again we keep using by bogging down the issue in some kind of web of lawsuits? So, yes, it is an attempt. This particular lawsuit I do not think is going to drag on for years, but it will delay the process. Uh, The judge who got this lawsuit, I think, is one who she's not going to give much credence to former President Trump's arguments here. So we could see her making quick decisions. Then, of course, those decisions could be appealed. But we're talking about months at the outside, not years here. Okay, so our next topic, Jessica, involves the former president and more potential legal problems for him. Donald Trump sat and gave a deposition under oath on Monday of this week. We talked about the background of this, as well as whether or not it would actually happen on a recent episode of Passing Judgment. You see a recurring theme here in terms of our episodes. It goes like this. Benjamin Dichter, a lawyer for the plaintiff, said, quote, 
Former President Donald Trump answered questions under oath for about four and a half hours Monday as part of a lawsuit brought by men alleging that they were assaulted by his security during a demonstration outside Trump Tower in 2015. And he also said the president was exactly how you would expect him to be. He answered questions the way you would expect Mr. Trump to answer questions and conducted himself in a manner you would expect Mr. Trump to conduct himself. Now, Jessica, one doesn't have to work too hard to have a vivid imagination as for what that description entailed. For his part, Trump's response labeled the deposition process, quote, harassment in a statement. Now, Jessica, Trump may have another deposition coming up. A different New York judge ordered him to answer questions by December 23rd about something else. This time, it's a defamation lawsuit filed by a former contestant on Trump's reality show, The Apprentice. Her name is Summer Zervos, and she has accused Trump of defamation after he denied allegations that he sexually assaulted her. So, Joe, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. We know that former President Trump is particularly litigious, but what's the historical background here for presidents or former presidents sitting for depositions? We know, of course, former President Clinton and the Paula Jones case, but give us a little more historical background here. All righty, Jessica. It's rare, but presidents sitting for depositions in front of committees or some kind of quasi-judicial hearing is not without precedent. Richard Nixon resigned before having to sit before any kind of committee or hearing investigating his behavior in the Watergate scandal. President Abraham Lincoln made a surprise visit to the House Judiciary Committee during the Civil War in defense of his wife amidst accusations of her being a Southern sympathizer. Thomas Jefferson, one of those founding fathers, was required to give evidence in the case United States versus Burr during the treason trial of Aaron Burr. That established a precedent that a sitting president was not above the law. President Ulysses S. Grant once sat for a criminal deposition to help his confidant and close friend, General Orville E. Babcock. We all remember that guy. I don't remember that guy at all. (laughs) Theodore Roosevelt testified twice before congressional committees during his presidency. Also, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, John Tyler, and Harry Truman, the latter of which, refused to testify against his former attorney general in a situation that involved accusations of being a Russian spy. So, Jessica, there are a number of lawsuits facing the former president. Will this position open the floodgates for more litigation against him. Uh, Hard to imagine that more litigation is possible, but of course it is. But in this case, I don't think so. I think this deposition is fairly confined to the facts of this case. Of course, there were some protesters who sued uh, former President Trump before he was president uh, based on actions that his security took in September 2015, I believe, saying that his security had assaulted them and had um, infringed on their civil rights, had prevented them from exercising their First Amendment rights. And um, what they were protesting are some of the more problematic statements, let's say, that he made with respect to immigrants and specifically Mexican immigrants. And in this case, it seems like he probably didn't say much. And let's remember that once you have somebody under uh, oath for a deposition, it's not like you can ask about everything related to anything at all. You really do have to keep yourself confined to the facts of that case and what's relevant to the facts of that case. So, It's a big deal that he showed up, that he sat there and he answered questions, but it doesn't sound like he was a particularly um, pleasant or delightful witness, which is, of course, no surprise at all. So we will be following those other lawsuits, of course, that 
he is filing and that are being filed against him. The Summer Zervos lawsuit is one that we've talked about that I've written about a little bit. Uh, we do need to keep our eyes on these defamation suits because they're kind of a backdoor way of litigating sexual assault claims. And um, I'll just put a pin in that, but we will be talking about that deposition in more depth when it comes up. All right. So no questions as for whether or not he cheated on his sophomore year collegiate history exam. But Donald Trump seems to bog down everything with his lawsuits, but the numerous suits against him don't seem to slow him down at all. The man rolls through everything. Teflon Don, as some people call him. Jessica, let's move on. A very important story, the status of the Freedom to Vote Act. On Wednesday of this week, Republicans in the Senate used the filibuster to sink the latest attempt by Democrats to pass voting rights legislation. Now, Jessica, we're working on a full episode on this topic, but for now, this will tide us over. The story is unique because it may not sound like a marquee event as much as some kind of procedural political drama on TV, but the base functionality of our democracy supersedes everything else. Given the current balance of power in the Senate, 10 Republicans would have had to have vote along with every single Democrat, but each one of those Republicans voted against even debating the bill. So, Jessica, why is this so important? Why is voting rights legislation filibuster worthy? Well, Joe, I think you just said it because voting is really the building block of so many other things that we care about. And I have a piece out on MSNBC about this, another shameless plug. And essentially what I say is, you know, voting is the seed. Voting is the blueprint. Voting is the foundational thing for everything else we care about. And at its core, we can't have a legitimate representative democracy if we have a situation where there's voter suppression. Joe, you and I have talked about the fact that there are a lot of states over the last few months and, in fact, few years that have proposed and in some cases passed restrictive voting laws, laws that just make it more difficult to vote without any benefit. So people will say, and those people, I hate to make this partisan, but really are largely Republicans, will say, well, we need to make it you know, harder to vote or we need to create these restrictions because we need a guard against fraud. Now, there just is no widespread election fraud in our elections. There is no problem with the integrity of our elections that these laws would solve. You know, there are laws that, let's think about it, say that you can only vote with certain voter IDs, maybe gun permits, but not student IDs. There are laws that say we're going to eliminate early voting or we're going to take drop boxes away from heavily populated areas where maybe a lot of Democrats live. So it matters because the federal government has to guard against all this. And we remember from the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 that history tells us that the federal government has a role here, that states will try to work with the election machinery to ensure that certain people can win elections. And the federal government has to step in sometimes and say no. And the problem, of course, here is that the federal government has not stepped in to say no, because despite the fact that Democrats control the White House and the Senate and Congress, there's no real voting rights reform that seems to be happening. Okay, Jessica, and why, pray tell, did every Republican vote against even debating the bill? They won't even discuss it. So I think Republicans are basically saying two things. One is that it's federal government overreach. And we just kind of talked about that in the sense that 
The federal government sadly does have a role to play here. And again, the history, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, shows us why in our country sometimes the federal government has to step in to protect our right to vote. And I think that Republicans will also say, well, we're not talking about this because it will just increase fraud or it will make our elections less safe. I have seen no credible evidence to indicate that. So what do we have here? We have a situation where the White House supports voting rights reforms. We have a situation where Congress supports that. I think Congress has now passed three, uh, maybe more versions of this voting rights protection bill. And it dies in the Senate because we still have the filibuster and you need 60 votes to move forward. And that's why folks were not um, getting our, our voting rights protected in this country. Okay, Jessica, which brings us to that filibuster. Now, I know we're working on an episode solely devoted to the filibuster, but as things currently stand, a rule that isn't even in the Constitution is preventing progress in our governance, and not to be hyperbolic, but it's threatening democracy itself. So stay tuned for that upcoming episode. But before we go, one last story. Colin Powell, the first black U.S. Secretary of State, died Monday of complications from COVID-19 at the age of 84. Powell had been suffering from both multiple myeloma and Parkinson's disease before he recently contracted COVID-19. He was due for a booster last week, but he was too sick to get the shot. Health experts, since he has passed, were quick to clarify that vaccinations were still crucial in the fight against the ongoing pandemic and that Powell's immune system was too compromised as a result of his cancer diagnosis and treatment and that the vaccination might have helped him just a little bit, but it certainly didn't make any difference in the end. Now, Powell, a little bit of in the way of biography, he made a career out of trailblazing. He was born in Harlem, New York in 1937. He entered the Army in 1958 and ended up serving two tours of duty as a soldier in Vietnam where he was wounded twice. He achieved the rank of Brigadier General in 1979. He served as Ronald Reagan's last National Security Advisor in 1987. And Reagan's successor, the elder George Bush, appointed Powell as the head of the Joint Chiefs of staff. While he was in that role, the American military fought the first war in Iraq. Powell earned a Congressional Gold Medal in March of 1991 for his role in planning the Iraq War, as well as a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Those were added to his Bronze Star and a pair of Purple Hearts he got from those times he got wounded in Vietnam. By 1989, Powell was a four-star general, only the second African-American to achieve that rank at that time. Powell eventually earned a second Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Clinton. Given his profile and popularity, Powell was encouraged to run for president more than once, but he demurred, essentially saying that he preferred to steer clear of electoral politics. Instead, his next contribution to politics in America was as George W. Bush's Secretary of State. That's a job he held on September 11, 2001, after which America's foreign and policy challenges changed instantly and dramatically. Powell's chief blemish was his speech at the United Nations in February of 2003, during which he asserted that Saddam Hussein was hiding weapons of mass destruction, although no evidence of WMDs was ever found. The U.S. military invaded Iraq just six weeks later. Powell said years later that he regretted his U.N. speech, but the United States would be embroiled in Iraq for years to come. Powell would resign from his post as Secretary of State in 1994 and leave the State Department altogether the following year. He worked as a strategic advisor at a venture capital firm for the remainder of his life and gave speeches at business seminars. Although he spent most of his career working in Republican administrations, his politics shifted over the course of his life. He endorsed candidate Barack Obama in 2008 and again for Obama's re-election in 2012. Powell voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, calling Donald Trump 
quote, a national disgrace and an international pariah. Powell openly supported Joe Biden in the 2020 election and went so far as to renounce his support for the Republican Party in the aftermath of the Capitol insurrection in January of this year. After a long career and serving in several administrations, Powell said, quote, I'm just a citizen who has voted Republican, voted Democrat throughout my entire career, and right now I'm just watching my country and not concerned with parties. Powell is survived by his wife, Alma Vivian Powell, to whom he was married since 1962, as well as three children. To this day, Jessica, I wonder if Mrs. Powell got an earful from Mr. Powell on the night of February 5th, 2003, after that U.N. speech. I watched it myself live at the time, and I still think that Bush and Cheney set him up there to sway public opinion in favor of an oncoming war that they had already decided to wage. So public servant polarizing figure perhaps, but goodbye to Colin Powell. So Jessica, thank you so much for all of your insight into these topics and I look forward to our next ones. Thank you, Joe. All right, so you can find Jessica on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson and Jessica and do make sure to read that new piece at msnbc.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at In-Depth Day. You can find the podcast itself, Passing Judgment, on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you ever so much, everyone, for listening. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.